0: I want to focus your attention this morning on Ephesians chapter 3. This is now part 6 in a series that I've entitled, But God. We've been making our way through Paul's letter, the Apostle Paul's letter to the Ephesians. And we've made our way thoroughly through chapter 1 and through chapter 2. And I mentioned two weeks ago that in chapter 1, Paul tells us what God has done to reconcile us to himself. And then in chapter 2, Paul shows what God has done to reconcile us to one another. So beginning in chapter 3, he says, verse 1, For this reason I, Paul The mystery is that the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. Of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things Jeez, man, I should get some sort of medal for that. Um, All right, let's pray together. God, it would have been much easier had you made the Bible an easier book to read. And yet, we fall on our faces this morning realizing that when we bump up against your mind and your heart, Oftentimes we are stumped and speechless. And so I'm convinced that one of the reasons why you inspire and have inspired difficult passages like this is because you want to remind us that you are God and we are not, that your thoughts are higher than our thoughts, that your ways are higher than our ways. And I pray that truth would sweep us off of our feet this morning. We need your spirit to be our teacher and our helper. I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear and hearts that receive and minds that understand your truth, which alone can set us free. And so with one voice, we pray, come thou fount of every blessing. And tune our hearts and our minds to see and to savor your amazing grace. And we pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. I, uh, I wasn't planning on saying this, but after reading that passage, I felt like I wanted to say this. Um, it is a rare thing. Sadly and surprisingly, it's a rare thing in churches around the world today to base whatever it is they're saying on what God has said. It's just it's rare. It shouldn't be rare, but it is. And um I remember how struck I was the first time I walked into a church as an adult. Um as a relatively new Christian and I walked into a church that was lively and uh friendly and hospitable but they They really took what God says seriously. And so the the preacher, and this was not the case in all the churches that I spent time in growing up, but the preacher stood up, and before he preached his sermon, he would read the entire passage that he was going to base his, that he based his sermon on, and then he would explain it. And and by doing that, it was a reminder to me that what God says is more important than, than what we say, or anything that I could say. Um, and so there's there's a method to my madness when I stand up on Sunday mornings as we make our way through books of the Bible, for instance, and... Um, I'm not a topical preacher, and by that I mean I'm not just looking for a subject to talk about and give my opinions about and then organize sermons accordingly. Uh, I want to know what God has to say, and then when God shows me what he has to say, I want to share that with you. So every sermon is based on what God says, and I don't understand all of this stuff, and I struggle to comprehend this stuff, and it's not easy to understand, and it's even more difficult to apply and to see the relevance. But I do know this, that what God says and what God says alone can set us free in the ways that we desperately need to be set free. And so, um, while it may seem tedious, it does to me, and I'm sure at times it does to you, but while it may seem tedious to sort of read all of that first, it's so, so important uh, as we grow in our understanding of who God is and how God relates to us and what he says about that. Um, So one thing, maybe you picked up on this as I read these verses, that four times, four times in these verses, these first 13 verses of Ephesians 3, um, Paul uses the word mystery to describe what God is all about, what God is up to, what God has done and what God is doing. And up until this point, in, in, in back then, up until this point, it was widely known that God had established the nation of Israel, the Jews, to be his special people. He had, and the Old Testament bears witness to this, that God had a relationship with Israel unlike any other group of people on earth, unlike any other nation on earth. They were his covenant people. He made his saving promises to them. I'll give you an example. In Romans chapter 9, Paul's describing the benefits that uh, the Jews had by being God's special people. And he says in verse 4 and 5 of Romans 9, Paul says, they are Israelites, the Jews, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ who is God over all, blessed forever, amen. In other words, Paul's out. Outlining there the benefits that accompanied being an Israelite, a Jew back then. There were real benefits. It wasn't that God gave his law to anybody, he gave his law. To Moses, he gave his law to Israel. uh, When he says at the very end of verse 5 in Romans 9 that it is through the Jewish people and it is through the nation of Israel that the Messiah came. Jesus himself was a Jew. And so he wants to make it plain that there were tremendous benefits, saving benefits to being part of that Uh, to being part of the Israelites, to being a Jew. They benefited greatly from being in this exclusive relationship to God, and they were a very proud people because of it. Who wouldn't be? But Paul says here in these verses that God had bigger plans all along, all along. Uh, His rescue operation began with the Israelites, but it was never intended to end with the Israelites, That's what he's getting to here, that God's plan was always, always more inclusive than that. Um, In fact, uh, God dropped a number of hints in the Old Testament that his rescue plan included Gentiles or non-Jews. You read the Old Testament and you read stories about Ruth and Rahab and Naaman and the whole nation of Nineveh that Jonah was sent to preach to, um, and a bunch more examples in the Old Testament that God's rescue plan always included and was always about including more people than just Israel, than just the Jews. In fact, Eugene Peterson, who was the one who wrote the message, um, he points out that the root meaning in Hebrew, which is Old Testament, The root meaning in Hebrew of salvation is to be broad, to become spacious, to enlarge. So even in the Old Testament, God was whispering his wide-ranging rescue plan and the fact that it was way more inclusive than what the Jews at that time thought. But when Jesus showed up, these whispers of God that we find in the Old Testament became a shout In other words, the days of dropping hints were over. God was making it very clear and God was making it very loud that in Jesus, um, people from every tribe, tongue, and nation had equal access to God. He was making that clear. Remember, after Jesus died, uh, the veil in the temple was torn from top to bottom Okay, if you don't know anything about the, this thick veil, which some estimate was literally made out of fabric, but it was four feet thick. And it separated the holy place in the temple from the most holy place in the temple. The most holy place in the temple was that room where God resided, where God was. And the high priest could only go into that room once a year. And it was such a dangerous thing to go into the presence of God that they would literally tie a rope around his waist. His buddies, the other priests, the lesser high priests, would tie a rope around his waist and he would go in and make his sacrifice sacrifices because if he touched the wrong thing or he said the wrong thing or he did the wrong thing he would be struck dead right then and there by God and they couldn't go in and get him because they would be struck dead too so they would just pull him out okay that's how serious this was Um, That's what makes what Jesus accomplished so beautiful, to think that there was not the kind of ready all-access pass back then that we now have into the presence of God. So when Jesus died, that veil which separated the holy place from the most holy place was literally torn from top to bottom. And the reason it was torn from top to bottom was so that there would be no question whatsoever that God did this. There's no human being that could get up to this 40-foot curtain four foot thick, 40 foot tall curtain, and rip it. Jesus' disciples couldn't do that. People who wanted to perpetuate this idea that Jesus was the son of God, but in fact really wasn't, they couldn't do that. So God did it to demonstrate that now people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation have equal access to me through what Jesus has now done, which I've said On numerous occasions, which is why we painted these doors red back there, because when we come through those doors into the most holy place, we are reminded that we have equal access to God. We have ready access to God, not because of what we do or because of who we are, but because of what Jesus has done and because of who he is. That's what gives us ready access to him. Um, And so, back then, um, even in the Old Testament, there were these whispers. God was dropping hints that his plan was always more wide-ranging than what the Jewish people, the Israelites back then, thought. But in the New Testament, when Jesus shows up, God made it as clear and loud as possible that people from every tribe, tongue, and nation had equal access to him. And this was a major, major pivot from God as far as the Israelites were concerned. You know, they, up until that point, they were special. They were the ones who had a special and unique relationship to God. And this was a massive pivot for God to open the door wide now for people very much unlike them was a massive pivot in their mind from God. And they didn't like it. They didn't like it at all. And I can understand that, you know, if there has been something in your life that has set you apart, something that has made you stand out, something that has made you feel unique, and then all of a sudden you realize that that thing, whatever that may be, no longer makes you unique. Uh, I can remember, okay, when I was, oh, I don't know, Uh 16, 17, or whatever, I got both of my ears pierced, 16, okay? Now, we do that all the time now. Back then, that was seriously rebellious, okay, as far as I was concerned. Um, And, you know, there were some guys that would get their left ear pierced, But I got both my ears pierced, okay? And this was like really pushing the envelope, you know? A real rebel, a pioneer. Um, And I felt pretty cool for about three weeks until I started noticing that there were a lot of people doing it. I'm like, well, now I got to do something else now. So I think I got another earring in my left ear. So now I had two in my left and one in my right. And then it wasn't long after that that I noticed that other people were doing that too. So I'm like, well, let me go get a tattoo. I mean, I just, there was, I, get it. I understand. And if we were to look back over the course of our lives or even look at our lives now, we would say that there are certain things that make us feel like we matter because it sets us apart from the crowd. Maybe it's the way you look. Maybe it's the amount of money you have. Um, Maybe it's your unique relationships or your unique network of friends or whatever the case may be. Um, your reputation. Uh, we, we, We find our identity typically in those things that make us stand out, those things that set us apart. And so I understand that this move from God in opening the door wide to people of every tribe, tongue, and nation would have made the Israelites scratch their head and go, well, I'm not sure I like this at all. Like, I mean, prior to this move from you, God, We were able to claim unique access to you, special access to you, exclusive access to you. And now what sets us apart if everybody can come to you? What sets us apart? Um, So they they didn't like this. Not only did it rob them of their identity as those who had exclusive access to God, but it was also inconceivable to them that God would welcome the unclean and the uncircumcised and the unlawful. It was inconceivable. This was God saying, I love dirty people, unlawful people, rule breakers, and they just couldn't wrap their their minds around that. Um, I mean, Jesus, the arrival of Jesus, scandalized an intimidating, elitist country club religion by opening membership up to those who had always been denied it. They didn't like it. So to the shock of Paul's original audience, his main point in these verses is that the mystery of the gospel, what is it? He says it four times, that the mystery of the gospel is the indiscriminate love of God for sinners of all stripes. That's, that's the mystery here. The mystery that he said was previously concealed to a certain degree in the Old Testament. Yes, God made whispers. Yes, God dropped hints. But it wasn't until the arrival of Jesus where God made it abundantly clear and explicit what his plan all along was. So um, so the great mystery, in other words, is that God loves all of the wrong people. That's the great mystery. Okay, now that, that, that's a lot of explanation and background into what's going on in these verses. Um, and as I was thinking about it yesterday, I, I thought this is so, reading these verses initially would make you go, what does this have to do anything with me today? Like this isn't relevant to me or our time at all. We don't have this great divide between Jews and Gentiles inside the church. And you know, oh, we, like I don't, How relevant is this for me? And then I started thinking about um, our current situation, where we live, the religious community, the church. And it reminded me of a, a quote from Mike Iaconelli who said, According to his critics, Jesus did God all wrong. He went to the wrong places, said the wrong things, And worst of all, hung out with the wrong people. What made the religious furious was Jesus' irresponsible habit of throwing open the doors of his love to the whosoevers, the just anyones, and the not-a-chancers like you and me. So what was going on back then is happening today we too, even as Christians, have a really difficult time with God forgiving and loving and accepting certain kinds of people. Um, I mean, God only includes dirty, undeserving people in his rescue plan because dirty, undeserving people are all that there are. And Paul's point in these verses is that While our sin reaches far, God's grace reaches farther and that it reaches in some surprising and at times frustrating directions. I mean, this is always the way it is with grace. Grace is always a surprise, but it's not always a welcomed surprise. Um, I mean, think about it. We want, I want, I'll speak for myself, I want God to hold a grudge against the same people I hold a grudge against. If someone has hurt me, if someone has betrayed me, if someone in some way, shape, or form has treated me badly, um, I don't want God to love them, honestly, okay? There is a place where I want them to go, and it's not heaven, all right? I don't want God to love them. I want God to get them back. I've said this before. We, you know, we all believe in law and grace, Law for other people and grace for ourselves. That's typically how we operate. That's our MO. I don't want God to forgive people that I have a difficult time forgiving. I'm just being honest. It's hard for me to love my enemies and even more hard to believe that God loves my enemies. People that I could not imagine even being in the same room with. So God's grace can be frustrating. It can be incredibly difficult to grasp for that reason. Um, I mean, we we want him, God, to be kind only to those who we think deserve it. But he's not. We want him to bless those people who we've decided deserve it. And that usually includes ourselves. Um, And that's not the only people that God blesses. The fact that God loves people we hate bothers us. One of the things that irritates people the most about God is His willingness to love, forgive, and restore those whom we have decided deserve the exact opposite. Um, I mean, if I were to stop right now and give all of you guys five minutes to really, before God, get honest in the quietness of your own hearts and have God help you identify those people... In the course of your life, that you really hope you never see again, or who hurt you very badly, or who you just can't even comprehend forgiving. And then to say um, God offers his unconditional love and unending forgiveness to that person, it, that frustrates me, to be honest with you. It just does. Um, There is something about grace and forgiveness that offends everyone except the person who needs it. Um, Case in point, we've looked at this passage before. The woman caught in adultery in John chapter 8. Okay, one of my favorite passages in all the Bible. John chapter 8, famous story, um, the... Woman, the religious leaders drag this woman who is literally caught in the act of adultery. It's not just an adulterous woman uh, who they know is an adulterer, but they actually find out when she will be actually in bed with someone who is not her husband. And then they go get her and they drag her out to Jesus. Um, And they make a statement to Jesus in the form of a question. Look at verse, well, you don't have to look there. I'll read it to you. John chapter 8, verse 4 and 5. The religious leader said to him, Teacher, this woman has been caught in the act of adultery. Now in the law, Moses commanded us to stone such women. What do you say? Okay. So they're, they're literally making a statement in the form of a question. They're trying to trip him up. They're trying to prove that he's an imposter who doesn't care about God's law. He can't be God because God would care about God's law. This guy clearly doesn't care about God's law, so he can't be God. Okay, that's what their their agenda is. Their motivation is exposed in verse 6 when it says, um, This they said to test him that they might have some charge to bring against him. Okay, so their motivation is exposed. In verse 6, they weren't really looking for an answer. They were making an accusation against Jesus. And the second part of verse 6 there, it says, Jesus bent down and wrote with his finger on the ground. And it doesn't tell us what he wrote, but it does tell us what he said. Because after writing on the ground, he says in verse 7, Let him who is without sin among you be the first to throw a stone at her. Okay, that's a famous line. Uh, we've heard that uh, on numerous occasions. Um, notice what ha- doesn't happen here, okay? And I, I I, really sort of discovered this. I had read this passage a million times. I had preached through this passage a bunch of times. But it wasn't until a number of months ago that I noticed something that I hadn't noticed before. Notice Jesus doesn't defend her, Okay, He doesn't say she isn't guilty of adultery. He doesn't say that. She is guilty of breaking God's law. She was caught in the act. She is an adulterous woman. She is guilty as charged. The accusations that the religious leaders were making against her, are they're not false, they're true. She's not being falsely accused. She's being justly accused, rightly accused. We tend to look with sympathy on this woman, but what if this was your wife? What if it was your mother? What if it was your husband's lover? What if it was your son's wife? We stand at a distance and read this story and go, man, those guys are jerks, poor lady. That wouldn't be your posture if that was your wife. Okay, that that would. You'd probably find yourself even more angry than the religious leaders were. It wouldn't be the same. You wouldn't have such a peaceful posture if it was your husband's lover or your son's wife or your mother. Um, It would be one thing if Jesus embraced the falsely accused. Okay, that's one thing. There's nothing scandalous about Jesus embracing an innocent person who is being falsely accused. There's nothing scandalous about that. What is scandalous is that Jesus embraced the guilty. That's the beauty of this passage in John 8, beauty of it. He doesn't say, guys, come on now. I mean, so she, really, are you sure? Do you have proof? He doesn't. He doesn't defend her. He doesn't, the the problem with that whole scenario is not that the religious leader said she was guilty. The problem with that whole scenario from Jesus' standpoint is that they thought they were innocent. And so he has to demonstrate by writing something on the ground and saying what he said, he had to demonstrate that they were just as guilty as she is, but maybe in a different way, in a different direction. So what is scandalous about Jesus and what so often can frustrate us and irritate us about the grace of God is that it Jesus embraces the guilty. Now that's good news to us, but it's not always doesn't always sound like good news when Jesus embraces someone who is guilty of hurting me. He loves the person we don't love. He forgives the person we can't forgive. He embraces the bad. What scandalized the Jews in Paul's day was not who God left out, but who God let in. And that scandalizes us too. I mean, there are certain people that I just assume belong in the club and others who don't. I believe a certain way. I think a certain way. I have certain convictions. I have certain thoughts about what God's community ought to look like and the people who make up that community, the kinds of people they should be. And God just doesn't play by our rules. He just just doesn't, he doesn't respect our preferences, okay? Um, He's so disrespectful in that way. Why didn't he ask me what I thought about whether or not to let this person in or to let that person in? So what offended them is so often the same things or what was hard for them to swallow back in Paul's day and what he's addressing here in these verses in Ephesians is the same thing that can frustrate us. It's not who God leaves out, but it's who God lets in. The ragamuffins and the misfits, the bad, the guilty, the broken down, the mystery... That Paul illuminates here is that Christianity is for sinners. It's for sinners. I know that sounds so elementary, so basic, and yet we forget it. Christianity is not for good people. Okay? I remember when Ted, this years ago, Ted Turner was being interviewed. I mean, this is I don't know, early 90s maybe, he was being interviewed. And said, Christianity is a religion for losers. And oh my gosh, did the religious community, the Christian community come out swinging? Who does he think? He, we're not losers. We're strong and we're mighty and, weak and we can sort of rally together and ensure that the right person gets into the right political office. We're a force to be reckoned with, Ted. Don't mess with us. The fact of the matter is he was absolutely Right? <laughs> It is for losers. It's absolutely for losers. I mean, the grace is only for losers, and nobody wants to stand in that line. The, Ted Turner's problem was not that he said Christianity is for losers. He was absolutely right about that. His problem was that he assumed he wasn't one, okay? We all are. Now, I didn't hear you clap like that when I was calling you a loser, you self-righteous bunch of... You clapped when I said Ted Turner was a loser. Like, yeah, right. You're proving my point. Okay. (laughs) Jeez, you bunch of losers. What's the matter with you, man? You listen to a word I say? Um, So, Christianity is for sinners. It's for sex addicts and shopaholics and control freaks and alcoholics and adulterers and blame shifters and gossips and liars and narcissists and faithless worry warts. It's for the selfish, it's for the angry, it's for the arrogant, it's for the unforgiving. Sinners are the only people God gives his grace to. (laughs) And many people, I'm sad to say, inside the church just don't believe what I just said. They don't believe it. They may say they believe it, but they don't when the rubber meets the road. Christianity in the minds of many people is seen first and foremost as a vehicle for good behavior and clean living rather than the only recourse for those who have failed over and over and over and over again. In other words, too many churches have helped to perpetuate the impression that Christianity is primarily concerned with making bad people good. Making people who behave badly into people who behave goodly. (laughs) Okay? That's what, that's what a lot of people think, and I know for a fact. I experience it myself, and I know many, many others who have experienced this, who just, the idea that they would go to church when life is falling apart doesn't even cross their minds, because church is filled with people whose lives are together, who are clean, And so the idea that they would ever make a beeline to a church when their life is falling apart or when they've just been exposed for something anus is inconceivable to them. That's the last place they would go. They'd rather go to a bar. They'd find a lot less judgment there and maybe some more listening ears there. They can't even, they they can't comprehend the idea. I mean, that is, I remember John Frost and I's mutual friend, Steve Brown, said years ago, that his dad, who he loved, um, was sort of taken aback when Steve became a preacher and said, I'll, I'll, I will never go to church. And in some of Steve's conversations with him, what eventually came out was not that his dad had some real issue with God. He may have, but that wasn't his primary issue. He just assumed the church was where good, clean people go, and he knew he wasn't good or clean, and he didn't think he belonged. That was not the club for him because I, I don't fit there. I don't fit there. That is, b- listen, be- believe this or not, <laughs> Christianity is not about making bad people good. Okay, it's not. Even if we were bad and we became good, being good is not good enough in God's economy. There's something much bigger than good that God requires. He requires perfection, sinlessness, flawlessness. The only thing God accepts is perfection, which is why we so desperately need and are grateful for the person and work of Jesus on our behalf. Because that's the only way we can have the access to God that we have. Not because we used to be bad and now we're, we've cleaned up our act and we're kind of good and responsible now. So that makes me worthy to go into God's presence. Doesn't. We need way more than good. Um, Christianity is not about making bad people good. If anything, Christianity is good news for bad people coping with their failure to be good. Far from the Christian faith being first about a moral code to keep, it presents a loving God who rescues people that can't keep the moral code, no matter how hard they try. Christianity, in other words, is not about the best people making it up to God. It's about God making it down to the worst people. That was something they had a hard time understanding and grasping, And man, that is something we have a hard time understanding and grasping. Barbara Brown Taylor, who is a um, retired Episcopalian priest, said this in one of her books. One thing that had always troubled me was the way people disappeared from the church when their lives were breaking down. Separation and divorce were the most common explanations for long absences, but so were depression, alcoholism, job loss, and mortal illness. One new widow told me that she could not come to church because she started crying the moment she sat down in a pew. A young man freshly diagnosed with AIDS said that he stayed away because he was too frightened to answer questions and too angry to sing hymns. I understood their reasoning, but I was sorry That church did not strike these wounded souls as a place they could bring the dark fruits of their equally dark nights. You know, we name this church the sanctuary for a reason because we don't want this to be the case here. We want this to be the first place people think to run to when their lives are falling apart, not the last. We want bad people to feel at home here. We don't want them to feel ostracized here. Because when they walk through the door, we can look at them and say, me too. Your sin may look different than my sin, and your guilt may look different than my guilt. Your habits may look different than my habits. Your unrighteousness may look different than my self-righteousness. But man, all have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. And there is one who came to do something about it. And he not only did it for me, but he did it for you. I mean, that's... (sighs) good news and all too often it's not the kind of news that churches are known for delivering which is why people stay away I mean church should be local churches should be the safest place rather than the scariest place for fallen people to fall down and broken people to break down it should be the place where we all gather together weak and wounded and collapse into the loving arms of Jesus together, week in and week out, reminding one another that we are in forever with God and he delights in us because of what God has done for us in the person of Jesus. Um, isn't it good news that we don't have to be good and clean and virtuous to get God's love? <laughs> It's really, really good news. It, uh, uh, my friend Paul Zoll says this that grace is irrational because it reaches out to the specifically undeserving person. This is the beating heart of it, he says. The good news of God's love and forgiveness, his grace, is addressed not just to those who are down on their luck or brokenhearted and suffering, but to perpetrators themselves. Tax collectors, prostitutes, murderers, liars, betrayers of trust. God's love and forgiveness and grace is offered not just to theoretical sinners, but to real, actual flesh and blood repeat offenders like you and me. That's who it's for. The gospel announces that God's love is a gift to be received, not a wage to be earned. It is a no-strings-attached present for the undeserving, not compensation for the competent. Um, It is good news of the highest order that only the unworthy qualify for God's grace. Only the unworthy. In every other club, you got to be, you got to do something to join, you know, to be in, to be a part of the gang. Here, you just have to bring all of your crap Okay, all of your sin and all of your struggles and all of your dysfunctions and all of your idiosyncrasies and all of your selfishness and all of your broken downness and all of your bedraggledness, all of the stuff, okay, that God knows about you, we just bring it. In order to be reminded that it has all been nailed to a cross 2,000 years ago, and because of what the person hanging on that cross did for us, we now have free, ready, all-access passes to God forever. And that his love for us is in no way, shape, or form ever, ever, ever determined by what we do or fail to do, and that his disposition toward us never changes It can't. We are clothed in a straitjacket of righteousness that no matter how much we try to wiggle out of it, we can't. When Paul in other places calls Christians slaves of righteousness, that's his way of describing a free person. How ironic is that? There is no freedom, real freedom, without being a complete slave to righteousness. And I've shared this before, one example of that seemingly only theoretical truth is that when I am convinced, when I know, when I believe that because of what Jesus has done, God loves me, unconditionally, and that all of the love that I deeply crave, I already have with God because of what Jesus has done, man, that sets me free from working my entire life to get everybody to like me. I might enjoy if you like me, but I don't need it. That's freedom because I'm a slave to righteousness.